Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. So for more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.acp.com. Com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. OG friends of the pod will remember Scott Dietrich and the farm and the PCCs for PharmD's pod all the way back in 2019. And just like our life is completely different now than back then, I thought it was time to bring Scott back, see where we stand with prothrombin complex concentrates. This is PCCs for PharmDs part two. Do we have any new data? Is our dosing going even lower? Is this a fixed dose protocol for all? Indexin A alpha versus PCC? Tell you what, we're in for a treat. A great episode is next. But first, a word from QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Scott Dietrich is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist with the University of Colorado Health based in Fort Collins, Colorado. He completed his PGY-1 residency at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, and has been practicing in the emergency department ever since. And you will find him on Twitter at PCC underscore PharmD. Very appropriate for our uh, discussion today. Scott, welcome back. How are you doing on this uh, fine August morning? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. Now, how's life been in Colorado? Because you're kind of parting words of wisdom when we last talked. You you told the listeners, hey, come and visit. It's awesome, but don't move. Stop moving here. Now that was in that was in 2019. How do we do? Yeah, I don't think anybody listened. We <laughs> our ERs have never been busier. We're boarding people like we've never boarded before. One of our ERs is going to get like 25 new beds. We're taking over space in a different ER because we need more beds. So I don't, I don't think anybody listens. Everyone's coming to Colorado. But you're still out there. So even with the crowds, I'm guessing life is still, is still pretty good. Yeah. Couldn't want to be in a better place. I mean, it's finally, finally starting to cool down a little bit. We're getting some mornings in the 50s. So that's been really nice. I got a visit planned, uh, a Red Rocks and a Rocky Mountain National Park trip in uh, September. So I'm very excited to uh, to have fun out in Colorado. Are you going to a concert yeah. at Red Rocks? Yep. What are you saying? Yeah, head in the heart. Fun. That'll be a good show. It's yeah. an awesome venue if you've never been there. Uh, I've only been once and it was like, it's one of those, it's, it's addicting. I feel like I want to try to go back at least every year now. Yeah. September is a good time to go too. Yeah. Um, well, we have so much to talk about. Let's kind of dive in for a second here. Now, before we, before we get into like the questions per se, one thing now I want to kind of get ahead of for the listeners per se is like when we're saying PCC, 
like we're referring to, unless we kind of specify otherwise, we're referring to like the classic four-factor PCC. Like the brand name would be K-Centra, what a lot of people use. Um, so just to kind of, to get that out there so people are, I know it can be alphabet soup sometimes when we're talking about the the PCCs and all the different forms of it like we will. So I wanted to give a, a little um, just heads up to all the listeners because we will be getting into into kind of some of the other, the other, um, names of them per se and the other kind of forms of PCC a little bit throughout the the pod itself. So from 2019 to now, I would say there's there's been a, a clear movement away from like our classic FDA labeled weight-based four pack four factor PCC dosing regimen. And we've started using a lower fixed dosing regimen for for a lot of things. So can we say that a fixed dose is appropriate for all patients, regardless of the indication? And let's kind of start the discussion here with with warfarin, because I feel like whenever we talk about these, we'll kind of have to have a little splitting of the roads and talk about them in two separate pools here. Yeah. So for warfarin, I'm totally fine doing fixed dose for any and all indications. Um, You know, the big one most people worry about is intracranial hemorrhages. And we did an ICH-only study at our system doing our fixed-dose protocol, which was 2,000 units. And when we looked at that data compared to standard dosing, both of them were more than 80% effective at reaching our goal INR, which was less than or equal to 1.4. But the interesting is when we looked at the doses, both groups, the standard and the fixed-dose, both received around 2,000 units. Um, the weight-based dose was slightly different at like 24.5 versus 27. Um, but, you know, the weight-based standard group, we don't have that high of an obesity rate in Colorado. So, you know, somewhere if you have some Hoosiers around there, it might be closer to 2,500 <laughs> units or something yep. like that. Um, but, you know, overall, I think the fixed dose for warfarin is appropriate. There's plenty of evidence to support it. Um, the only caveat is, you know, you need to be dosing in the 1,500 to 2,000 units per dose. There's a, you know, a study out there doing 1,000, and I don't, I don't think that's enough. Um, you know, we know higher INRs at baseline increase the risk of failing to meet your goal. So anything over four to five has a higher risk of not reaching it. So, you know, if you're doing fixed dosing, you have someone like that, you just need to be vigilant, make sure you get that post-PCC INR ordered, and then be ready to redose with 500 to 1,000 units if you needed. But overall... You know, anyone with warfarin, I'm fine doing fixed dosing is, you know, little to no risk and the benefits are, you know, substantial. Now, quick, quick follow-up question here. You mentioned being extra diligent with getting a, a follow-up INR. Um, what, like, what, when you mean extra diligent, like, what do you mean by that? Or what strategies do you think we can kind of use? Because I think that's probably one of the only limitations or problems, in my opinion, with the fixed dose protocol is that follow-up and, and missing that, uh, that redosing um, opportunity. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, you know, fixed dose or regular dose, there's failures in both, but, you know, you as the pharmacist, whether you're in the ER, the ICU, when you're ordering that reversal stuff, you need to be ordering the INR and make sure you time it, you know, 15 to 30 minutes after you expect the infusion to end. So, you know, when you're ordering it, you factor in some time for them to make it in the pharmacy, deliver it, get it set up, infuse, and then, you know, 15 to 30 minutes after that, you know, make sure it's ordered. If you want to be extra vigilant, you can go to the bedside and remind the nurse that it needs to be ordered and sent and, uh, and then watch for the results, you know, when it comes back and whenever that turnaround time is. 
Yeah, you know, you mentioned how busy your ERs are. Sometimes when they're running around, you have to talk to that nurse because she's they're not going to have time to look at that computer from when they're trying to give it till now. So, I, right. Yep. They may want to, you know, put it on the pump and then go next door and, you know, do something else. Um, okay. So we're a little, you're, we're a little more clear on the, on the warfarin side of things. Where do we stand with kind of our fixed dosing protocol for our 10 a inhibitors like rivaroxaban or apixaban? Yeah. So that's a little more controversial for the non intracranial hemorrhage people. It's probably totally fine to give a fixed or low dose. Um, when you think about warfarin, you know, anyone who's not an ICH, their INR goal is less than two. So, you know, any degree of reversal is probably sufficient most of the time. So if you extrapolate that kind of thought process where as long as you give them something, they're probably going to be okay. Uh, when you look at the ICH population, though, it's a little more difficult. The literature we have is a little more conflicting. Uh, but given we have so much more data with 50 units per kilo dosing, um, it's hard to argue with that at this point if someone orders it. Um, I still believe that the 25 units per kilo data is convincing enough, um, but there's just a smaller overall number of patients that have been studied. Um, so if I'm ordering the dose, if the doctor says, hey, put in something, I'll put in 25 per kilo. Um, but if someone else puts in 50, I can't really argue it with it anymore. Um, and then there's one, uh, Brian Gilbert, Brooke Barlow, and Spencer Dingman wrote a brief article for Neurocritical Care Society where they kind of had a back and forth debate about 25 versus 50. So if you haven't checked that out, that's worth reading. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's almost like a, it's not a blog. I don't want to like downplay it, but it's, it's accessible to everybody. So it's not like anything you need to download. And, and two out of three are, are friends of the pod on there. And we also want to, want to shout out that, that study that you, that you mentioned that you published, the listeners can go back to that November, December, 2021 literature review series, because we highlighted that study. Don't you get me wrong here? Cause that is, we try to get all the good, all the good studies here. Um, cool. now you've mentioned when, when we've like fixed dosing protocols, and I would say most that we've seen, and even most that we've talked about or published are kind of in that 1500 to 2000 units as like your fixed dose, especially for warfarin reversal. So are you familiar with any alternate like fixed dosing protocols? Are there, are, are people trying to get a little more creative or if we've kind of, uh, kind of stood the line with these two more or less? So, it, I mean, it does seem like that 15 to 2000 has been the dose for a long, long time. But, um, this year on Twitter, Tori Arsenault posted a photo of their like pharmacy education board and they were highlighting their fixed dose regimen, which was something I had never seen before. So they had the dose based on weight ranges. So if you were less than 50 kilos, you got a thousand units. If you were in a 50 to 80 range, you got 1500 units. And if you were greater than 80 kilos, you got 2000 units. So that's a little bit different than what we've seen before. Uh, most of that dosing is in that kind of normal range. Um, you know, it looks good to me. Very easy for people to order on the EMR. Um, they had a repeat INR, you know, as part of their order set. And then they had recommendations for if you failed to hit your INR goal. Um, so I, I think that's a good protocol. I think that, um, you know, I, wish, I would like to see some data if they wanted to publish that. But I imagine that would be very, very good for the vast majority of patients. And they would probably be just fine. And, and for those wondering, you can kind of find what, what Scott's referencing here. Um, her uh, handle is at rx. Tori Arsenault. So we'll kind of include that in the in the reference list and things. Um, so when we're thinking about 
like our, um, you know, dosing protocols and things. Another thing that'll come up is, is time to administration. And, and I'm asking if that matters because when we think about like our use of thrombolytics and stroke, right? It's, it's time to TPA. When we think about our, our MI, right? It's either time to needle or time to, to the cath lab and things. So is there, does the same principle apply when we're thinking of anticoagulation reversal? Yeah, I mean, I think the guidelines and, you know, it just general standards of care are always going to want to give reversal agents to people with life-threatening bleeds as soon as possible. Uh, but in terms of literature, there's actually not a lot out there. I found a study from 2017 by all. They were looking at hospital length of stay and in-hospital mortality among anybody who needed 4PCC for reversal. And it started with the blood bank was originally, you know, responsible for the PCC, and then it switched over to pharmacy. So they did kind of before and after. And once it was in control by pharmacy, they reduced the time to administration by 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found no differences in mortality or hospital length of stay, but they only had 65 total people in the study. So that's probably to be expected with a small group and a small time difference. Um, there was a study in 2022 by Chi out of Milwaukee that they looked at hematoma expansion among warfarin ICH patients, um, and they stratified it in 30-minute intervals, um, looking at, you know, as you go past the time of arrival to getting the PCC, um, but they did not find any differences in hematoma expansion, um, and they had to do an adjustment at the end to try to adjust for baseline factors like GC- GCS. Um, because people that would come in with, you know, a gigantic bleed in their uptundas and their GCS is four, they're more likely to get, you know, the PCC right away versus someone who's, you know, GCS of 14, you know, there's a line at CT, they wait to go, they go and there's a little small subdural. So, um, you know, a lot of that was just skewed towards the people who got it earlier actually had worse outcomes just because they were, you know, worse at baseline. But you know, overall, it's going to be really hard to have a study showing that sooner is better just because you'd probably need a ton of patients um, and a pretty significant difference in time. Um, doesn't mean I'd recommend delaying reversal in any life-threatening situations, but it's not something that we're probably going to get good data to point to. Um, but I will say there's a, there is a time and a place to delay. And that's, you know, someone who has a non-life-threatening bleed and they're going to go to the OR, and they might go to the OR 6 to 12 hours later. You get PCC now, it's going to wear off around six hours. So, you know, if you can delay it to get it closer to the OR, when you'll get that maximum effect, that'd be the only time I'd probably delay giving anybody PCC. And we'll also kind of kind of hit on another unique point of a, a little later talking about giving versus maybe not giving um, some PCCs. But as we've as we mentioned in the beginning, we've been referring, referring to the four-pack factor PCC when we've been saying that term up to this point. I think us as pharmacists and really in healthcare in general, we're always looking to reduce costs and adverse events while kind of maintaining that efficacy. Now, four-factor PCC is guideline recommended um, compared to three-factor PCC, but at the time, that felt like it was due to just having more and better evidence, but not necessarily head-to-head data. So do is there any research actually comparing those two agents themselves? Yeah, 2022, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis by Margraf that was looking at three PCC versus four PCC for warfarin reversal. Um, they included 12 studies. Um, there were some slight variations in methodology and INR goals, but each study they included was a three PCC versus four PCC 
study. So it wasn't like they took a bunch of three PCCs, gathered a bunch of results compared to a bunch of four PCC studies. So, you know, doing it that way, I think was a good way to do it because it kind of makes things the same in each population as far as treatment goals, treatment algorithms, target INRs, things like that. So when they looked at INR achievement overall, the four PCC group had a success rate of 85% and the three PCC patients were only at 63%. So there was a big difference between those two. And that's probably because that extra factor seven that's in the four factor. Um, most patients were in the 25 to 30 units per kilo range, which is, you know, normal dosing. So it wasn't like one group got terrible dosing or not. So, you know, there's a big difference of 85 versus 63%. But when they looked at real outcomes, survival was 80% in four PCC versus 74 and three PCC, so, you know, no difference there. And in terms of VTE rates, 5.6 with four factor and only 3.6 with three factor, which kind of makes sense because it's a little bit more procoagulant effect with the four factor. So, you know, overall, these results sound pretty plausible to me. The four factor is going to be more effective for INR reversal given it has more factors in the product with that extra factor seven. Um, and that maybe is what correspond with that slightly higher VTE rate that we saw. Um, I don't think many institutions are using 3PCC anymore. Um, but if they are, that might sway me consider changing um, when you have such a poor rate of hitting your INR goals. Um, you know, on the flip side, if you're one of those three-factor places, you could say like, hey, yeah, we're not in the INR goal, but our outcomes are the same. So, you know, we're not going to change. But, you know, when you're only hitting the goal like half the time, it doesn't look that good. And then are you scrambling and giving more or are you just saying, hey, we didn't hit the goal, but our outcomes are going to be the same. So, you know, if I was a three PCC person, I probably would be using this to try to sway some people to go the other way. Yeah, it's just a bad look if you're if you can't get it like that, right? It's 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 yeah. not necessarily bad, but just it doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you mentioned at the end, if you're still using it, that's you're you're probably hanging your hat on those on those outcome differences. And and we we talked about cost a little bit. Is there even still a cost savings like associated like between these agents? As, as far as we can tell, I know trying to find costs is like a nightmare nowadays. It feels like. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at. I was trying to go Redbook and Lexicomp, and I was looking on our cardinal ordering, and the four factors were about two times as expensive as the three factor product. So, I mean, if you're getting equal doses, then technically you're saving money, but if you're failing a bunch and then you end up giving, you know, a second repeat dose, or, you know, maybe that cost difference kind of comes down and there's not that big of a difference anymore. Is this like the real life version of instead of eating like three whole, like regular ice cream bars, you're eating six reduced fat ones yeah. and it comes out to the same thing basically. <laughs> yeah. Might as well just get it all up front. Exactly. Um, now let's, let, let's kind of keep the comparisons coming a little bit and kind of keep looking at our four factor agents and look at our activated PCC, which some may, may know by the brand name of FIBA compared to just our standard four factor PCC, which has the inactive inactivated factors. So is there any data kind of comparing the two specifically looking at our, our vitamin K antagonist reversals? Yeah. So the last time we talked, there's a few things that came out. So in terms of Warfarin, um, Gary Pexa out of Chicago they did a low-dose uh, APCC, which theirs was 1,000 units per dose, and they compared that to standard dose for PCC for warfarin reversal. 
And they actually did a propensity match analysis, which is a good way because a lot of times they do these studies, all the baseline INRs are different and then you get different results. So they try to you know, control for that by doing a propensity match analysis. They had 86 patients in each group uh, and they found that the four-factor people were more likely to reach their INR goal, which was less than 1.5, um, 88% compared to only 71 for the activated PCC patients. And then when they further did a subgroup analysis looking at people with baseline INRs are greater than five or greater than seven and a half, the four PCC arm performed much better than the PIBA-treated patients. So the four PCC and INR greater than five reached the goal 90%, and it was greater than seven and a half, they reached the goal at 75%. And then the APCC people only meet it, met that 66% of the time, and then 50% of the time with the INR greater than 7.5. So, you know, just that baseline, the four factor looked better, you start getting higher INRs, that thousand units of FIBA is not doing it anymore, and then you get really poor results with those high INRs. So, you know, if you're an APCC institution doing a thousand units for everybody, um, this study doesn't really help you support that. Um, but maybe you can say, hey, it's just that people with the highest INRs are failing to meet goals, so maybe we'll give them a little bit higher dose and maybe do like 1500 or something like that. Um, you know, when we did our old PCC war study way back in the day, which was FIBA versus standard dose, 4PCC versus fixed dose, 4PCC. We also kind of found the same thing. We had a subgroup of baseline INRs greater than five. And the 4PCC people reached goal around 70% of the time, and the FIBA patients were only like 40%. So I don't think this result is a one-off. It seems, you know, the higher the INR goes, you're going to need more factor to get reversal. So, you know, if someone's out there listening and wants to do a 1,500 units of FIBA, for INR greater than five, that'd be a good study to have. It's almost like you need to do, you, you need to have a lower threshold for increasing that dose for the activated products than you do for kind of our standard. Cause I don't, well, INR greater than five, that doesn't seem like anything for most of the protocols I've seen where you, we empirically increase the dose. Is that something that you all do? So our right now is at seven and a half. And I've been kind of like starting mm-hmm. to bang the drum a little bit. And I think it should be lower around that five range. Like I did a, a study with some people out of Iowa and you know when we we never I, don't, I can't remember if we published this part or not but we were looking at where like the failure rate like dramatically increased and it was like four and a half or five and there was another study that kind of looked like that so I, I, I think that's where the range of where you might need to go higher from like maybe 1500 to 2000 units of 4PCC but you know if you're doing a thousand units of FIBA you definitely need to do more than that once you start getting up higher Now, I feel like the the waters always get a little muddier when we start talking about factor 10A reversal compared to our, our warfarin reversal. So what comparisons do we have in this patient population? Yeah, there's a few more studies to talk about with this one. So in 2021, Bobby et al. out of Pittsburgh, they had <clears throat> 47 patients with intracranial hemorrhages on 10As, um, and they found that 89% of those had a stable repeat CT head after 20 units of uh, 20 units per kilo of FIBA, which came out based on their weight in the population to about 1,700 units. Um, so single center study, no comparator group, but 90% seems pretty high, maybe higher than average for effective hemostasis. Uh, but that dose does sound good to me. So if you're you know, somewhere using FIBA to reverse your 10 A's and you're in that 1,500 range, it's probably a study you can point to and say, yeah, this is you know validating what we do. Um, later in 2021, Smith, at all out of Michigan, they had a group of patients with 
between 25 and 50 units per kilo uh, FIBA for tenure reversal. They had 77 patients total. About half of those were intracranial bleeds. Um, they evaluated the hemostatic efficacy in the 66 of those 77 patients and found that 71% achieved excellent or good hemostasis, and their dose was around 30 units per kilo at the median. When they just looked at their ICH patients, the hemostasis was the same, about 72%. Um, when they looked at thromboembolic rates at 30 days, that was pretty high at 11.7%. Usually you see about half that in the other studies, and that's kind of like similar to that high indefinite rate of, you know, BTE complications that we see. Um, when they attempted to stratify the efficacy based on dose, so maybe they were thinking the lower doses weren't meeting it or the higher doses were more likely to achieve hemostasis, they actually found the opposite to be true. Um, people who got 50 per kilo were more likely to be in the poor response group compared to, you know, the 25 to 30 per kilo were an excellent group. And that, again, like we talked about earlier, is probably just selection bias at baseline. And really bad bleeds, you know, poor prognosis are probably going to be more aggressive with the dosing and push that 50 per kilo dose versus someone with a small subdural that is totally fine and might get a lower dose. So, um that's probably why they found that difference. They weren't super clear about how they chose the reversal dose, but uh, like we just talked about, provider discretion. Um, so it's probably more based on, you know, what they see in the patient and how severe the bleed is. Um, but 50 units of APCC is a lot. You know, Warfarin, we should be doing like 1,000 to maybe 1,500 units. And these people are getting, you know, maybe two to three times that. So um, that 25 to 30 units per kilo of activated PCC is probably a, a good spot to be dosing that. Um, it'd be interesting to see if they get some more people with getting 50 per kilo of that BTE rate just goes, you know, stays that high or not. But, um, you know, that's an okay study. If you're using FIBA, you can point to it and say, you know, excellent hemostasis at 75%. It's a, a pretty good number to point to. It When I looked at this and looked at those high doses, it, it almost makes you think, did you publish this to show to show these rates and try to come down? Or, you know, did we extrapolate the, the normal four-factor dosing to our activated dosing with that? Because that's the highest I've ever seen of like the 50 units per kilo of FIBA. That's, I'm shocked the VTE rates aren't a little higher, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, we know like giving activated factor seven to people, you have just Novo 7, you have tons of VTE rates, and then you have activated seven with three other factors in there. And it totally makes sense if you're giving these whopping doses, you're going to be causing a lot of complications. So those are, those are kind of two of our, of our smaller studies lead us into probably, I would say argue, arguably one of the bigger studies just with the use <clears throat> of PCCs in general, um, led by a group of, of awesome pharmacists. Yeah. So the biggest study to talk about pain at all published in circulation in 2020, um, probably one of the biggest ones we'll get until some of these, you know, industry-sponsored one comes out, but they had 663 patients, of which 433 were analyzed as part of their efficacy portion. Uh, so it was a large, multi-centered observational study looking at safety and efficacy of two types of PCCs. It was regular four PCCs, and they also had a small subset with activated PCC. Um, they used the SEROD criteria as part of their hemostatic efficacy, which was you know pretty standard. Um, so when they looked at the four PCC patients, 75% patients in the group, um, which was 500 patients. So again, a gigantic number of people receiving 50 units per kilo. Um, they had an 82% rate of achieving excellent or good hemostasis. 
And um, that was for both groups, including the APCC one. So, you know, when you're looking at excellent or good hemostasis at 82%, and we're always thinking about an EXA study that had around an 80% excellent or good hemostasis. So, you know, very similar results to see to that study. Um, as far as safety-wise, they analyzed all 633 of those patients. They found a event rate of only 3.8%. And when you look at the Anexa study, that there was 10%. So again, a very low number um, compared to some of the other treatments that we'll talk about later. Um, so 80% efficacy with a 3.8% VTE rate seems like a pretty solid, you know, treatment to me. So overall, this is a really good study. You know, it's not an RCT. We're not going to get that anytime soon. So this is the next best thing because you have just such a large number of patients. It's multi-centered. Um, so there, again, this is why earlier I was talking about I can't really argue against giving 50 per kilo of 4PCC to anyone that orders it just because we have this one study with so many people that if they want that, then yes, I'll say yes to that. Um, the 25 per unit kilo, the 25 units per kilo studies probably reach maybe maybe half the amount of people we have in this one study. So, you know, while I'm fine doing 25 per kilo, again, when you have 430 people in a study, that's the most we're going to get now, and it's the best we're going to get at this point. Um, if you're a center using FIBA at this point, you can maybe point to the study and say, hey, this is a big one. We had 150 people getting FIBA. The efficacy rate was 82%. So we'll say, hey, yeah, this is what we're going to use for, you know, 10A reversal. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's an incredible effort um, to get all of these. I mean, I think it's it's 26 centers, I believe, or, or a large number. And it's, you know, um, one of the one of two of the authors like kind of representing the neurocritical care group, Morgan Jones and, and Aaron Cook, both friends of the pod. So um, names that the listeners would recognize here. And I'll kind of retweet on the on the pharmacy to dose um, account Twitter account. Uh, Morgan Jones, when this got released, kind of had a a little kind of Twitter thread talking about his experiences with helping and and kind of his insights of that. So it's really good. I always like when when authors and researchers kind of give a little bit of behind the curtain views. So we'll we'll retweet that for the for the listeners to be able to read. But um exciting all around. I remember when this got released, it was one of the, one of the biggest PCC studies to date. And like you said, probably the biggest until we get those RCT research industry sponsored, um, sponsored studies to kind of, um, get released. Now you mentioned kind of no reversal initially. And I said, we'd come back to that. So, you know, depending on how small the intracranial hemorrhage is, or maybe what their indication is for anticoagulation reversal, I've worked with neurosurgeons who don't necessarily reverse everybody's anticoagulation, depending on the size of the bleed, their their GCS, what have you. So it's always kind of made sense to me, but a lot of times what, what makes sense physiologically in medicine doesn't play out in, in um, outcomes. So are there any studies that have been kind of published to, that look at this that maybe support doing any of this? Yeah, I did find one study it was in 2022 by Cooksey, and they were out of Tennessee, um, and they had a small retrospective. They did propensity matching of APCC versus no reversal. These were mild traumatic intracranial hemorrhages on 10 A's, and they got 42 people in each arm. So this was reversal versus no reversal. And when they, one of their outcomes was hemorrhagic progression, um, and they saw no difference in either group. They saw no reversal had a 90% chance of having no progression versus 85% with the people who didn't get reversed. 
um, and they didn't find any difference in in-hospital mortality, discharge disposition, or any outcomes like that. So, you know, this is definitely a unique study, like you said, that we're not normally just kind of letting these bleeds ride and not giving them anything. So I, I'm not sure how to extrapolate this to real world. You know, 42 people, it might be a hard sell to, to one of the doctors and say, hey, let's not reverse this person because, you know, it might be like the whole TPA thing where you're more likely to get sued for not doing something than mm-hmm. doing something. But, you know, if you had a teeny tiny little bleed and someone is totally stable and everything's fine, that, you know, maybe if they want to give a gigantic dose of reversal, you'd be like, well, you know, we could do nothing or we could give them like a small dose and then maybe go from there. Yeah, it can, it can help you um, on the, the compromise corner um, to, to meet in agreements or kind of if, if the, you know, the trauma or, or neurosurgery team doesn't want to, maybe you can feel a little more comfortable with, with that anticoagulant not being reversed um, despite having the little, the little blip on the, on the CT. Um, and then we got to give a shout out Leslie Hamilton, a rare back-to-back uh, mention on, on pharmacy to dose pods here, but she was um, on our last one here. Now, up to this point, we've really focused on doses, protocols, and comparisons as it relates to four-factor PCC and anticoagulation reversal. Now, when we look at non-reversal indications, um, do we have any new data to guide us? Is it still pretty foggy? Like, is there any populations that maybe we've gotten some some clearer evidence on on our use for non-reversal indications? Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse because, you know, the surgical population is not really down in the ER. They come to us and then they go and then it's an upstairs problem. So you're helping our ICU colleagues out and we all appreciate <laughs> you for that. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, surgical wise, I found there was a couple of studies since you last talked um, in 2021 in Toronto, Carcuti, they did a randomized study of people going under uh, cardiothoracic surgery when they had bypass times of greater than two hours. They either gave them 2,000 units of 4PCC or they gave them four units of FFP. Um, and their main outcome was chest tube drainage in at 12 and 24 hours. And they did have a statistical decrease in that with the 4PCC group compared to those FFP patients. Um, they showed less FFP use in the K-Central group, which is to be expected because everyone in the FFP group had to get four units. Um, so, you know, once they took that out, there was no difference. Um, and they found some trends towards lower total blood product requirements within 24 hours of surgery um, at six versus 10. But again, that four unit difference is all related to the FFP. Um, but when they looked specifically at platelets, there was four versus eight units transfused. And then PRBC is one and a half units versus three units. So in terms of those types of products, those were reduced by giving case centra. Um, so I guess, you know, if you're a 4PCC person, this is a favorable study. If chest tube output is, you know, a, a outcome that you really want to hammer on. Um, in terms of differences in blood product unit, we're getting less platelets, less PRVC. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, they didn't have any other outcomes to look at in terms of length of stay, mortality or anything like that. So I'm not really sure about those. Um, and this is kind of similar to another study in 21 by Bartosco. Um, they had CV surgery patients. There was a study called Fibers, which was comparing cryo versus fibrogen concentrate. And they did a subgroup of that of people who got 1,000 units of 4PCC versus 4 units of FFP. They had statistically significant reductions in PRBC and platelet transfusions. 
Um, so again, similar results above that, you know, your giving factor, you're probably going to reduce some of the products that you need. Um, they had no outcomes of ICU or hospital length of stay, so we don't know about that. Um, but I don't know, if you're an ICU person and you think that, you know, you're worried about the adverse events of giving a bunch of blood products, the TACO and trolley and all those fun acronyms, um, is giving four units of platelets less and, you know, one to two units of PRBCs less worth the cost of K-Centra? Is it, you know, is that something you think, you know, that maybe you could point to these studies? I don't know. Downstairs, we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'll let the ICU people tease that out. Now, the thing is, think about all those blood product shortages we're having, right? Do I'm hearing four, four, four packs of platelets. I'm like, gosh, I'm lucky to get one or two for our for our MTP patients. Um, I, I hear of this as, you know, I, I worked with cardiothoracic surgeons and I, I hear of this more as like, you're going to help with a protocol because when a, when a surgeon is demanding something in the OR while that person is bleeding out in front of them, very rarely are they in the compromised state of mind. Um, more it's they want it and, and they want it now. And so I think it's, to me, I see this as a way um, to help maybe do some like stewardship and prevent those patients from getting 50 units per kilo of the four factor. But I agree, it's it, hard to know what to make of it with outcomes and things like that. But I think it can be helpful for those pharmacists who come back and deal with those patients with bad chest tube output, surgeons who don't want to take them back to the OR um, and those types of things. Now, what's a, let's kind of shift to a population that, that you, th this might actually affect you. I'd say maybe less in your wheelhouse, but I feel like this is probably something that, that comes up more, more often for you. Which one? The trauma people? Yeah. Looking at our trauma yeah, folks. So this, this is more our wheelhouse of like, you know, someone's coming in, they're bleeding a bunch. What are we going to do? So there was this really cool study in 2021 that was published um, it's a re retrospective one where they just took data out of a na national trauma database and they pulled out people who got whole blood. And then from that, we're looking at whole blood versus whole blood plus four PCC um, during the initial resuscitation period. Um, they did exclude patients with a baseline anticoagulant use, which I, I think is a good one when you're trying to just look at hemorrhagic shock from trauma, not necessarily I'm bleeding because I'm, you know, on a blood thinner. So, mm -hmm. you know, important, but, you know, keep that in mind. So these people did a propensity mass analysis. They had 168 patients in the whole blood group and then 84 in the whole blood four-factor group and found that patients who received four-factor PCC had lower 24-hour requirements for PRBCs, so it was eight versus 10. They had lower FFP requirements at six versus eight. And which is a, a really interesting outcome is shorter ICU length of stay of five versus eight days. So that's a big difference there. Yeah. Um, but despite that difference, there was no difference in platelet transfusions, hospital length of stay, VTE events, or in hospital mortality. So I'm surprised that that big ICU difference didn't translate into any more downstream effects. But, um, you know, this is a pretty cool study. Um, there's probably a decent risk of selection bias because it's not clear how these people were chosen to receive four-factor PCC. Um, you know, it's a big national database. So, you know, maybe they all came from one hospital somewhere that was deciding to do this versus, you know, being more spread out and being easier to generalize. Um, they didn't talk about the dose of four-factor PCC that was received. Though I had to guess it's probably 25 per kilo. Um, and then the last thing is the window for the inclusion that they pulled from was 2015 to 2017, which in the terms of trauma care is a lifetime ago. There's been a lot of updates since then, a lot of evolution in care. So 
you know, maybe that difference wouldn't be as significant now as it was seven years ago. But again, pretty cool study. Probably one of the better ones I've seen in terms of rationalizing giving PCC and trauma recess. Well, and and two things with that, it it kind of grinds my gears a little bit when these studies don't include doses, when it's not like when there's not some assumed universal dose, because it would be be helpful to know maybe they did a thousand units, right? And then suddenly that that looks a little more appealing if it's not a weight based thing. Um, yeah, I could also see this being used for for centers that don't have tag. That, that don't have the, the capabilities to truly see kind of what your coagulation cascade is happening in, in real life. Because I know our use of tags, the the requests for this before this is back have, have come down drastically just because we're getting more real-time answers. Yeah, I mean, if you know exactly what's happening, you don't have to empirically throw something at somebody versus hey, having a tag right here that shows, you know, this person needs some product. Now, I... It wouldn't be the the PCC part two pod if we didn't bring back index and A alpha. I feel like we're when we're talking about our our prothrombin complex concentrates versus index and A alpha. I feel like we're in like the a heavyweight fight. We're in the sixth or seventh round here. So so where do we where do we stand? And I guess the the follow up would be. Like, do we have any studies specifically like looking at the use of PCCs versus Indexa? Now that we've had some time to to use it in practice, to have people actually research and get some data out there. Yeah, there's been some stuff coming out. Um, a lot of it's small, but you know it's worth mentioning. So the first one was in 2020. Bar it all out of Boston um, was looking at this. They had excellent or good hemostasis seen in 89% of the 18 patients that got indexament. And then they only found 60% excellent or good hemostasis in the 11 patients that got 4PCC. Um, that 60% is much, much lower than anything we've talked about. At this point, usually it's 80-ish percent. Um, again, they're probably skewing the results because the people who had excellent hemostasis in the 4PCC group actually had lower doses, like 25 per kilo, compared to the poor group at 35 per kilo plus. So it's probably just baseline differences again. But, you know, this one small study with 18 people and 11 people, I don't know if I trust it that much, at 6% seems a lot lower than everything we've seen so far. And we didn't have anything in 21. And then in 2022, we had like four studies published. Um, There's a group out of Duke. They found the hemostatic efficacy to be 65% among indexinate patients, which was 21 of those. And they had 35 PCC patients. And again, only found a low rate of 55% hemostasis. Mm. Um, so again, lower, kind of similar to that first one, um, thrombotic events in the indexa patients were 14% compared to 31% for the four factor wow. people, which is like 10 X what we saw in that piano study. So, um, I don't know if it's my personal bias to not want to believe those results, but you know, that's one data point out there and maybe it's just a weird outlier. Maybe it is true, but you know, I, I think my confirmation bias is strong to not want to believe those. It's it's kind of like uh, in Super Troopers, they're like, "Oh, that guy? I wouldn't worry about that guy." We'll just kind of it's a little it's a little <laughs> yeah. blip. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a little a little over thirty percent is really high. I mean, it's just a compared to all the other data we have, and and sometimes larger multi center data showing lower. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm in the same camp as you. Yeah, when you have six hundred patients with Panos, and then you have you know. 
20 in this group, it's like, oh, I'd rather trust the 600 plus. Yep. So there's another one by Sam and all. They were out of Florida. They had 47 patients in the Nexa group, 62 in the 4PCC group. So, you know, bigger than the last ones we talked about. Excellent hemostasis was found in 71% of patients in each group. Thrombotic rates were similar at nine. So, yeah, that sounds better to me. Um, they did a cost comparison of the two, and that was the only difference they found in any outcomes in this whole study. The cost of therapy within Dexanet was $24,000 per patient compared to only $7,000 for the full PCT group, which, you know, we've been talking about cost forever. So, you know, that's definitely real, seems legit to me. Um, and, you know, these results seem a lot more in par with some of the stuff we've already talked about before. So, you know, mm-hmm. I will tend to believe this one more than the ones I don't want to believe. Um, there was one of Syracuse by Parcels at all. There was a single center match cohort review. They had 26 people in each group. They found excellent or good hemostasis uh, for indexinate at 92%, and then it was 89%. For the four-factor PCC group, they looked at thrombotic rates at 14 days. Uh, indexinate was significantly higher at 27% compared to 12% with 4PCC, and both of those are higher than normal. Um, but again, I believe that in accident, you know, higher than four factor. Um, so this was a smaller study, the exact opposite of the results of the two small studies we talked about earlier. So again, you kind of average everything together. We're looking around an 80%, 85% effective hemostasis rate with a, I don't know, 5% VTE rate for PCC and maybe 10-ish for indexinant. Which checks out, and, which is similar to what, what they've kind of found in, in those other large studies. Right. So, yeah, I'll believe the smaller ones when they match the big ones. Um, there's one more to talk about, COSA. This was a multi-centered review. They tried to control for baseline differences by performing another propensity score weighted analysis. So they actually took the original Anexa 4 patients and then propensity matched them to their 4 PCC patients they had at their institutions and then looked at, uh, you know, efficacy and safety from there. So when they looked at uh, efficacy, they found found 86% rate of hemostatic efficacy with indexinate versus only 68% in the 4PCC arm. Um, and then mortality, which is really weird, was 8% in the indexinate group versus 20% with 4PCC. So um, a big difference there, something that we haven't seen before. You know, this is a decently sized study with around 100 people in each arm. They tried to propensity match them to make sure the baseline they were you know, similar, but that eight and twenty percent seems very different than what we've seen in the past. So I don't know if that's real. They just had a bad month there when they were giving K Centra, but you know, something to keep in mind. Um, so overall, I mean, the stuff that we have so far, the smaller it is, the kind of further out outlier you kind of see with the results. Um, I would say that. Um, the larger studies like Panos with 400 people getting it, some of these other ones getting 100 people getting it. Again, 80% is around that number that we're going to see and expect for efficacy rates. The VTE rates can all vary, you know, 5, 10%, but, you know, that's kind of where all the data seems to kind of be honing in on. So just to try to make sure that we we kind of cover this as as completely as we can, because we've talked about some of the other PCC studies looking at um, 
kind of hematoma expansion, right? The studies we've talked about kind of looked at um, hemostasis itself. So do we, like when we're looking at our 10A reversals and comparing index in A-alpha and PCCs, do we have any difference in rates of hematoma expansion in, in those agents, with those agents? Yeah, there was a 2021 study by Hutner, which was like this international study um, again, they kind of used the Anexa 4 ICH patients, and then there was another study called Retrace 2, which is um, looking at hematoma expansion among 10A people who got 4PCC. Um, in that Retrace 2 study, the authors didn't find any difference between hematoma expansion with 4-factor, um, but they did show that higher systolic blood pressure at 4 hours were associated with hematoma expansion, so just keep that in mind when we go through the results that they didn't find any difference with reversal. The only thing that made a difference on hematoma expansions was blood pressure. Um, so in this study, when they're kind of comparing people from two different studies, which you know I guess is one way to do a study, um, they found a lower rate of hematoma expansion among the indexinate people with a hazard ratio of 0.44, which is pretty low. Um, there was no outcomes differences related to that in terms of mortality, functional status on discharge. So you know, that hematoma expansion that was higher with the four PCC patients didn't actually translate to meaningful outcomes. But um, those four PCC people ended up having higher MAPs and systolic blood pressures. And since we already know that that increases the rate of hematoma expansion, that probably is why you saw better results with the indexinate in this group is just because they're already higher risk for having that based on their baseline characteristics. So, you know, this is one study that you could look at and say, yeah, indexment does better, but when you kind of dig a little bit more into it, it's probably not that high of a benefit. You know, 0.44 is a hundred ratio is pretty impressive. So it's probably either the same or maybe slightly better. But again, there's no outcome differences, no difference in mortality. So, you know, I don't really think indexment is going to change hematoma expansion compared to another reversal agent. And when you say elevated blood pressure, I mean it's not like those are one eighties or two hundreds. They they defined it as greater than one sixty. So, yeah. you know, it kind of things that we all think of with, with the head bleeds, blood pressure being a big one, obviously can make changes like we're seeing here. So you, you work in the emergency department at various emergency departments. And so I think a kind of unique issue, especially if you're working at a tertiary referral center is, um, attempting to administer PCC after a patient has received Indexa at the outside hospital or vice versa, right? I could see it to where you have um, PCC given and then you have a, a neurosurgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon, a transplant surgeon demanding they get the FDA-approved reversal agent, Indexa and A-alpha. So do... Other than probably a crazy thrombosis rate, do we know what happens if you get both? Is this something that we should ever really be doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, I would say it should only be reserved for rare occasions. And we, there was an article published by Lou et al. out of Boston, and they had a series of five patients who ended up getting both. And they said, hey, let's, you know, kind of look into these and kind of report what happened. Um, all of them got F or four-factor PCC first, and then they got indexinate later. They're all ICH patients. Um, you know, it sounds crazy when you read the abstract, and you're like, yeah, we gave case center and indexinate to these people, and it just, you know, blew my mind. So I actually started reaching out to one of the authors, Eli Phillips. I was talking to him back and forth on Twitter, and it turned into, I actually read the article once I got access to it, 
And these weren't your normal, like, run-of-the-mill patients where they're in the ER and they got both right away. Um, some of the people were at outside hospitals. They got four-factor there. Then they get transferred into their hospital. Neuro is going to take them to the OR, and they want indexinet running, you know, while they're in the OR. Uh, or they, you know, they get case entered down the ER. Nobody knows the dispo yet. An hour and a half later, again, they're going to go to the OR. Neuro wants that FDA approved, so then they end up getting both. Um, so, you know, it's not like they're getting both at the same time. It's usually these extenuating circumstances. Maybe they failed at the outside hospital when they get to the third, the new hospital. And then they're like, all right, we got to get something else. So they took their five patients. They found another 18 patients that had published info on. And then they were looking at terms of thromboembolic rates and found that 35 to 40% rate of thromboembolic complications. They keep out both. So again, we talked about earlier, maybe in the five to 10%. Range between Indexa and 4PCC. So, you know, this is three to four times higher rate of complications if you're giving both. So, if you have a situation where someone's failed the initial therapy and people like, you know, the IQ or the neurosurgeons are talking about maybe giving another one, this is something that you could just bring to the table and say, hey, you know, we do have a little bit of info that, you know, if we do give this other one, their chances of getting a comp VT complication are almost 50%. So, you know, are you guys willing to accept that risk? Is, are you going to be, you know, more diligent and monitoring maybe ultrasounds or scan their chest, looking for PEs and things like that, something to look for, you know, downstream after this happens. So I don't know if we'll ever see another study like this because, I mean, I hope we do. If these are happening, it's a good, you know, data point to have. But, you know, this is a very interesting study, very interesting article and something to keep in mind. Yeah, this is this is a really, really good example of, of a um, publishing something that um, – I don't know if you inherently know how much it can help because I feel like for for other pharmacists, if you just tell someone you have an increased risk of VTE events, right? What does that mean? Well, now we have, right, 35 to 40%. And so, it, you know, you just have a little more data to come to and talk to. Now, granted, we know sometimes surgeons want to do what surgeons want to do, but any other kind of data or info that we have to kind of back us up can, can always help. So yeah, this is a really, I think a great kind of case series published out of um, Beth Israel in, in Boston. So uh, kudos to, to kind of that group here. Now <clears throat> we've kind of talked about a lot of the published research and things. And I feel like in most scenarios, the data and research comes out obviously before guideline recommendations or, or updates come. So do we have any kind of of these guidelines that address the use of PCC or indexinate alpha or maybe some of these fixed dosing protocols? Have anything kind of come out that um, guidelines supports what we've kind of been doing? Yeah, so the American Heart, American Stroke Association came out with a guideline on spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhages. Um, they recommend immediate reversal after diagnosis of it. So again, kind of like we talked about where delaying versus just giving it right away. They're saying give it right away. Um, it's not a strong recommendation, and they say there's limited data to support, you know, giving it right away, which, again, we know because there's little data out there. But, again, they say if they have a bleed, they have an ICH, reverse them as soon as possible. Um, in terms of warfarin reversal, they do recommend 4PCC plus vitamin K. Um, they do have a weird caveat in there that if the patient's baseline INR is 1.3 to 1.9, you can just use the key centra and not add the vitamin K because you're already, you know, mm. less than two. You're pretty close to your goal. Um, I don't know if I totally agree with that. You know, if your INR was like 1.4, I'd be 
probably try not to give you anything. If I did, I'd give you something. I'd give you 500 to 1,000, just a whiff, as, li- as little as they let me because you're so close to your goal. But that probably would be someone that, you know, if you don't give the vitamin K2, once the PCC wears off, you're probably not going to rebound above 1.5. Uh, but if you're in that 1.8 to 1.9 range, give some PCC probably 46 hours, you might kind of creep back up if you don't have that vitamin K there working later. So they say if you're less than two, you don't give it. I would probably say if you're less than 1.5, you don't need the vitamin K. So, you know, something to think about there. As far as 10A reversals, they give a class 2.8, which is a moderate level recommendation for indexinant, and then a 2B, which is a weak recommendation for k central reversal. Mm. But, you know, it's always a... If you have indexinant, you give it. If you don't, you give 4PCC because it's FDA approved. So that's always the theme of these indexinant if you have it, PCC if you don't. Um, but they don't offer any dosing recommendations on four-factor PCC. So it's probably, you know, 50 per kilo or 25, whatever you do at your institution. And then the one more one that came out is in terms of GI bleed guidelines. Those are a Canada and U.S. collaboration. Um, came out earlier in 2022. Uh, the interesting thing about this one is they had a very, quite, uh, very set criteria to what the definition of an actual life-threatening GI bleed is. Love that. Um, yeah. So a lot of times, you know, we have these GI bleed people in the ER and they want to reverse it. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know how to assess if this is a life-threatening <laughs> mm-hmm. GI bleed or not. Usually it's not. You know, now we kind of have a checklist that we can go through. So they defined a life-threatening GI bleed as someone with major overt bleeding resulting in hypovolemic shock or severe hypotension requiring pressors or surgery. So that's fair. Uh, a hemoglobin drop of greater than five uh, if they required a transfusion of greater than five units of PRVCs or if they died. Yeah, I would think that would be a severe life-threatening GI bleed. So again, these are criteria that when you have a GI bleed come in, you should be assessing to say if they meet any of these criteria, then you can consider reversal. So it's not like if you meet these, you're automatically reversed. This is just to be eligible to be considered to be thinking about maybe giving reversal to. So, you know, if you have someone come in, their hemoglobin drops five, but they're normal tensive, they're not tachycardic, they're not short of breath, they're not dizzy, they're not weak, then it's like, meh. I don't really know if I need to reverse this person. But, you know, if you have someone on the flip side who's like on pressors and getting blood, and yeah, that's probably an easy one to say yes to. But, you know, this is a good thing to have of delineating who should be even considered. It's very easy to go to the physicians and say, hey, we have this guideline. These are the people who should maybe be getting reversed. This person doesn't meet any of these criteria. I don't think they should be reversed, and the guidelines support that. Yeah, I feel like it's almost going to help more in preventing inappropriate reversal. Because I feel like unless there's a, a a bad indication or something, most people are going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you talked about earlier with like the stewardship, these aren't cheap things. So if you can avoid giving someone three to 5,000 units of case central for no reason, then, you know, that's good for the pharmacy budget, that's good for the patient, all that stuff. So, um, so after they defined those things, they kind of went into what to use for reversal. So for 10A inhibitors, they say index it, and if you have it, 4PCC if you don't. So, again, similar to before. Um, they don't pick one over the other, really, but, I mean, they kind of hedge towards indexing it, again, because of the FDA approval. Um, if you had your last dose of the 10 inhibitor outside of 24 hours, they say don't reverse it because there's not enough left to reverse. So, again, that's a thing that you can point to and say, hey, you know, this person hasn't taken their stuff in two days. 
I know they're having a bleed. They probably meet some of these criteria, but there's nothing left to reverse. So the guidelines say don't reverse this person. Um, for dabigatran, they say idiricizumab, which is, again, nobody should be on dabigatran, so hopefully that doesn't come up. And then for warfarin, they did have some interesting things um, in their reversal section. So they recommend PCC. Uh, if you are going to actually reverse them, they didn't really talk about the dose, but they said, hey, just give them PCC. And then in terms of vitamin K, they completely recommend against giving them vitamin K on a routine basis. Okay. They say the onset of action is too slow. That's unlikely to be helpful in these GI bleed patients that tend to, you know, if they're going to go get clipped or whatever, you know, have the bleed stop. That like the vitamin K is not going to even do anything to that person. So the only few people that you can even consider giving vitamin K to, people with very high baseline IRRs and that their goal is to be off warfarin for two to four weeks after the GI bleed or if they're going to stop it altogether. Now, that dispo is never, ever going to be known in the ER. Yeah. We're never going to be making that decision. But, you know, maybe in the ICU, someone's up there, they've been there for a while, and they have a new GI bleed, and everyone's like, okay, this GI bleed is really bad, we're going to reverse them. Then you can have the conversation of, like, what's going to happen down the line? So, you know, maybe the ICU would know that. If it's someone on the floor and cards is following and they're about to go home and it could be a huge conversation, yeah. If we're in the ER, probably not going to know that, so... You know, if their INR is 2 and you're giving PCC, I probably wouldn't give the vitamin K. If their INR is like 10, yeah, that might be the time when you give both together. So, you know, you kind of have to, like, play it patient-specific and, you know, kind of think about what their goal is. If you're giving PCC to someone whose INR is super, super high, it's going to come down. It's probably not going to come down super far. It's not going to last that long. So, you know, them rebounding back to 5 is a real concern versus, you know, if they're INRs too, and I give you a bunch of PCC, you're going to be down and be fine. Yeah, it kind of changes a little bit. I think with life-threatening bleeds, we've always reached for like the PCC and vitamin K. And I feel like this kind of gives our first delineation like, hey, with head bleeds, we probably still want to go that route. But with our GI bleeds, maybe we don't need to. So kind of delineating a little bit based on, based on the um, indication for reversal, which is always a great thing. So what studies are on the on the horizon that we should be looking out for? I feel like there's I feel like we've had some things in the uh, in the green egg for a little bit, right? Well, they've been they've been maturing for 12 to 18 hours here and I think we're are we almost ready to pull some of them out? Yeah, I mean there's some there's some stuff on the horizon which is, you know, good to see. There's a couple of trauma ones and then there's one for just intracranial hemorrhages that we'll talk about. So the first trauma one is called ProCoag. This is a prospective, randomized, multi-site or the double-blinded study in France. And they're looking at 25 units per kilo for PCC um, to standard care among trauma patients with major bleeding. Um, their primary outcome is going to be total blood product within 24 hours, which I think is, you know, if you're giving someone PCC, that's what you're trying to reduce. And then they have all the normal secondary outcomes like uh Total blood product needed, I see like the save, bent three days, hospital length of save, mortality. So, you know, this one stopped enrollment in 2021, according to clinicaltrials.gov. So hopefully we'll be seeing something, you know, published in the near future on this. But, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what kind of effect the case is having on these trauma, you know, MTP type of patients. Because we've had a few retrospective studies, but this will be the first real RCT on this subject. So it'll be interesting and hopefully, you know, we can find something out in the next less than a year or so, if they're already done, you know, enrolling patients. 
Yeah, it's kind of you mentioned the the really promising results from that um, uh, study out of Arizona. They didn't really mention the dose. This seems to be a study from the from the slim details we have. That's um, uh, the methods are fairly similar. And you mentioned twenty five units per kilo. So maybe we'll get a. This will help clear the waters a little bit as to um, what is really helpful or not. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's good. So. And then there's another one that I just I just learned about this week. Our, our level one trauma center is trying to participate in this CSL bearing study, which is our makers of Kcentra. They're doing a randomized controlled trial called TAP, which is trauma and PCC. Um, so it's phase three, placebo controlled RCT. Their goal is to roll 8,000 patients from 140 centers, and it would be a international study. To be eligible for enrollment, it's greater than 15 years or greater than 15 kilos and anticipated to receive a massive transfusion protocol. And then their dosing is different than anything we've seen before. So if you're less than 75 kilos, you just get a flat 2,000 unit dose. And then if you're more than that, then you get 3,000 units. So they have these little packs with the vials in there. So you either get like two or three vials. And that's kind of like, you know, but this one, again, is double-blinded, placebo-controlled kind of thing. So... Um, the enrollment of, apparently started in mid 2022. Their anticipated end dates not till 2025. So this will be one that we're waiting on for a while. Um, the dosing is higher than we've ever anything we've seen before. I mean, I guess depending on your weight, you know, if you're 100 kilos and you're getting 3,000 units, that's about 30 per kilo. So it's not too far off of that 25 unit per kilo range that we've seen before. But you know, a little bit higher and you know, a little bit different than we've seen before. Um, and then kind of their shtick in the slide set with it, they hope to show a 2% reduction in the primary endpoint, um, which is total blood product. So, you know, they, they're talking about how they, this is a big study, you know, they're not trying to show a huge difference, in, but they think 2% is enough, I guess, for them as a company to say, hey, we can show a 2% reduction, you need to be giving everybody PCC in the trauma bay. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So the 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 P one listeners be on the lookout when you're on rotations. We may have we may have uh, results for for that. Then maybe. Yeah, I'm sure as soon as they can come out with these results, they're going to be blasting everybody saying, "Hey, you got to get." It'll be the new oh, TXA yes. where we're going to be giving mm-hmm. empirically. You know, we're just going to have pre-mixed PCC ready to go, and anyone who gets a unit of blood will have a case center hanging on the other side. <laughs> can that, so can that, go, can coming that out? go through the fluid warmer? Can that get, do we know, can that be bolused in? <laughs> I don't know. Can you just add it into the Belmont with everything else? Yeah. And you're getting a little bit of it. All right. So the only other one to talk about is, you know, in terms of indexinant, we were talk, alluded to earlier, but when they came out with the next of four, the FDA said, all right, now you got to do a study versus standard of care. So, you know, the standard of care is obviously going to be four PCC. So this trial was registered in 2018 and says they plan to enroll 900 to 1,200 patients. So if they actually do that, that would be bigger than the PANO study. It would be the largest one we have to date. Um, their estimated primary completion date is May 31st of 2024. So they still have, you know, almost a couple of years left. Uh, but then again, who knows how long it's going to take for them to actually publish their results. If they completed it in May and you see something in August, you're going to know that they found a big difference in yep. favor and indexinate. But if it goes on and drags on and on and we never really hear anything, you can bet that the difference is not going to be that good or PCC is going to look better. So 
Um, that'll be interesting to see. But you can, I mean, we'll all be able to guess what's going to happen if we see the results quickly or not. If we don't see them, everyone's going to know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting, the only caveat, this is an ICH only study. And we know the Annexa 4 study was, you know, all comers who got PC, uh, got reversal. So, you know, let's say this new study is positive in indexment's favor. Do you extrapolate that the ICH data is better and then start giving it to everybody else who needs reversal? Or do you think that they'll only keep it in the lane of the intracranial hemorrhage bleeds and not kind of say, oh, everybody else should get it too? I feel like it's going to be split. I feel like the places that have it really highly restricted are going to continue that and maybe just include ICH patients in there. But I know there's going to be plenty of places that want it on formulary that use it as their standard of care. And I think they'll extrapolate it. I I think it'll really depend on what the decision makers, what are their thoughts on PCC versus Indexa for better or worse. Yeah, I guess during that P&T meeting and they're like trying to say, oh, we're going to give the next to everybody. And you'd be like, no, no, no. They only said ICH. We're not doing everybody yet. We don't know if it even works for the other ones. So, you know, or if you're pro index and then you can say, no, screw it. We're going to do it for everybody. But that'll be interesting. I mean, I was, I, I took part in P&T meetings when, and when we were doing, when we were trying to figure out Indexa to be formulary or not, and that was a bloodbath. I feel like this is going to be the red wedding. If there's positive results, trying to figure out, um, it, how, what indication to use for kind of a timely game of Thrones reference as we, uh, welcome back the prequel this uh, weekend, but all right. Um, so we've you've you've done an, a really really good job of like summing up a lot of the updates and it feels like the things have gotten clearer in some senses from when we last talked but like there's still some some debates or or um, room for interpretation. So if 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 you kind of had to wrap up or have like a summary of 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 one big point or things to consider when you kind of think about PCCs and and reversal for for the listeners, what do you think that might be? So for Warfarin, do fixed dose. Don't do the FDA dose. And we know there's plenty of data, lots of data at this point to support if you're giving a legit dose, which is fifteen hundred to two thousand units of Warfarin, you're going to be fine. Check the INR after. It's not at your goal give a little bit more, but, you know, for warfarin reversal, it's pretty set. 10A inhibitor reversal, again, I still like PCC over indexin and alpha, somewhere in 25 to 50 units per kilo. Someone orders one, I can't argue with it. I'm still empirically kind of starting with the 25 per kilo, and I was a gigantic bleed, and they're already creating, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, maybe 50 is fine, but, you know, most people, you can probably get away with 25 per kilo, um, 50 for more severe. If you're an institution with indexinant, you know, it's probably out of your control which one you're picking most of the time. Try not to get both indexinant and 4PCC if you can avoid it, because we know there's a really high complication rate. Um, and then in terms of, you know, GI bleed, think about those guidelines and who meets criteria to be even considered. So, you know, we, in my practice, we very rarely reverse any GI bleeds. I haven't had a GI bleed on a presser in God knows how long. So, you know, a lot of those people don't need to be reversed. If they're on warfarin, probably don't need to give them vitamin K. We are going to give them vitamin K. The expectation is they're going to be off the warfarin for a couple of weeks. Um, and then in terms of trauma, you know, like you were talking about earlier, we probably a tag is way better than just empirically throwing factor at someone who is bleeding and needing blood products. So if you're an institution with tag, it's probably not going to be a problem for you. If you're an institution that doesn't use tag, 
and you have a trauma patient who's bleeding out, you're giving a bunch of blood products to, if they wanted to give, you know, 25 per kilo of 4PC to that person, that's probably a reasonable thing to do. Um, in terms of logistics, it's more difficult because it's got to come from upstairs. If they're bleeding, they might be going to the OR right away. So you don't want it coming downstairs to the ER and then getting lost and then having to send another dose to the OR. So, you know, just kind of keep that in mind. If you are going to give 4PC, see what's the dispo and how long is that dispo going to take? Um, but yeah, and then we're going to wait for those future studies to come out, see if it works in trauma, to see if indexin is actually worth all the hype, again, for PCC and intracranial hemorrhages. Well, Scott, this was, this was awesome. I mean, a, a huge, huge thanks for, for coming back on the pod and sharing what appears to be an infinite knowledge on PCCs and uh, anticoagulation reversal. So a uh, reminder uh, for the listeners here, Scott is on Twitter at PCC underscore PharmD. So listeners, reach out with questions or to send him his well-deserved flowers, what what uh, what have you. Um, but Scott, thanks again. I'm sure you have, have beers and mountains to get back to in the uh, Colorado summer here. Um, yes. But thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Now for the listeners, reminder, if you're looking for, uh, reach out, Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The reference list with the articles, guidelines, and things we discussed, um, and more is going to be featured in the podcast episode description, as well as at pharmacy to dose.com, the website. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.